Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Heavenly Father, sanctify us in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our sermon text for this evening is a very familiar portion at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. We begin at verse 18. Please stand in Jesus' name. Matthew tells us, Jesus approached and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and gather disciples from all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to keep all the instructions I have given you. And surely I am with you always, until the end of the age. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, as you see on the front of your bulletin, our sermon series for this year is focusing on baptism, and it's based on words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, baptized into his death. By God's grace, we want to look at and contemplate during this Lenten season just some of the many, many riches that are ours by God's grace through the waters of baptism. Tonight, I'd like to look with you at these words of the Lord Jesus, which we commonly call the Great Commission, and I'd like to use as our theme for this evening, the reality of our redemption. I'd like to look at what that means and how it impacts your life and mine. I don't know about you, but when I hear these words of the Great Commission, my mind just goes right to the commissioning of a missionary, someone that God has called through us to send off into some other place, some other nation, some other part of the world to leave behind the things that he knows and loves so many of the things that he's come to know and love and to follow Jesus' call to go. If you and I think of that, that's a wonderful concept and very much a part of these words of the Great Commission, but I would, I would call that kind of the narrow understanding of the word go. Because if that's all who Jesus was talking to, he's only talking to a few folks, isn't he? But there's another understanding of this word go that involves, that involves you and me as well. But now not going in a physical sense, but going, you might say, in a spiritual sense. In this sense, in that you and I separate ourselves or keep at arm's length all of the things that God in Christ has poured out on you and me in this earthly life, 
to understand that they are gifts from God, tools that He has provided you and me so that we might serve Him, not across the world, but in our own little worlds with all of the gifts and blessings that He has given to us. Our sinful flesh wrestles with this concept of going in the sense of keeping the things of this world at arm's length. Your sinful flesh and mine has done a wonderful job of trying to convince you and me that this, is, this stuff that we call the things of this world are what make up life to the full and the fullness of life that you and I experience. Those are gifts from God, but he has a very different concept of reality than our sinful flesh. What I'd like to do with you this evening is take you to St. Mark's Gospel, the end of chapter 6. There's a wonderful illustration there of what I'm talking about. The end of Mark chapter 6... Uh, let me give you the setting for it, first of all. The beginning of Mark 6, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, sends them out to the surrounding towns and villages to preach the good news, and then he gives them some wonderful abilities as well. He tells them to cure the sick and to, and to drive out demons, sends them out. Towards the end of St. Mark chapter 6, the disciples have finished their work and they've returned to Jesus. And Mark tells us that they've come back to Jesus. You can, you can understand if they're full of all kinds of excitement for the things that they've seen and heard. And they want to report to Jesus. But there's a problem. Mark tells us so many people were coming and going to see Jesus that he and the disciples did not even have enough time to eat. It was crazy. Try giving Jesus any kind of report with all that confusion. Not going to happen. Jesus understands this. And he tells the disciples, let's get away from here. Let's go to a solitary place where you can get some rest. And the disciples think, now he's talking. This is good stuff. So they get in a boat and they sail across the Sea of Galilee. It's not really a sea, it's a lake. Fresh water, not real big. They're heading for a solitary place somewhere over there, trying to leave the folks back here only the folks can see where they're going. And they start following the boat around the lake so that by the time the boat arrives on shore, people are all gathered. Dear ones, by the thousands, they're there. The very thing that the disciples were so excited to have a chance to leave behind had followed them around the lake and was waiting for them on the other side. And instead of that wonderful rest that Jesus talked about that day, the disciples, were told, spent the day having to take care of the needs of the people. 
And we're told that Jesus had compassion on them, on the people. And he taught them many things. The day went on, getting towards evening. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, you got to send these folks away to the surrounding countryside, to the towns and the villages around here so that they can buy some food. And you have to wonder a little bit about the sense of that suggestion. The reality is there's not enough stuff out there. Folks, they had gone to a solitary place. It was still a solitary place, just happened to be filled with people. But that didn't mean there were all kinds of towns and villages around it. Jerusalem was a long ways away. Where is a crowd of this many people going to find food? And you have to wonder about the sense of that suggestion from the disciples because Jesus turns it right back on them. And he looks at his 12 and he says, you give them something to eat. Well, yeah, like that's going to happen. We have five barley loaves and a couple of fish. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And the Gospels tell us that there were just 5,000 men besides women and children. Huge crowd. Jesus takes those things, thanks his heavenly Father for these gifts of food, and then begins the, one of the most phenomenal miracles that those disciples had ever seen. The food just starts to multiply. The disciples gather up what they can and they distribute. They come back and there's more food. They take some more food and they go out. And in this way, they finally feed all of these people from those five loaves and two fish. And Jesus tells them, now that everybody's had enough to eat, go out there and clean up the leftovers. We don't want to waste anything. And there was enough leftovers there for a full basket of food for each one of the 12 disciples. So far this day is not going real well for the disciples, you see. They were thinking about going away someplace alone with Jesus to get some rest. It's been just a complete reverse of that. Now maybe we got the people fed, body and soul, now maybe we can finally dismiss this crowd, get them going back home before it gets too dark, and we can maybe keep a little bit of this day for ourselves with Jesus. Not going to happen. Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you guys get in the boat, go back over to the other side of the lake, I'll dismiss the crowd and I'll catch up with you later. Well, that's not the ending to the day that the disciples were thinking about. This had gone just 180 degrees opposite from the way that they expected this day to go. But their day wasn't done yet. Perhaps they had a short enough distance across the lake that they could make the distance before it got too dark and they could make whatever destination they were heading. We don't know, because they didn't make it. A storm came up at night. And these guys now have to fight a contrary wind, St. Mark tells us. 
A wind that instead of making this a kind of a short trip keeps them out on the lake all night long. Jesus does not go out to them until almost dawn the next day. He goes out to them. They see him. They've been fighting against the straining against the oars all night long. They think they're seeing a ghost now. They're scared to death. And Jesus says three short sentences. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Gets in the boat. Storm stops immediately, St. Mark tells us. So, that's a day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. So love the way St. Mark puts this all together. The reality for the disciples at the beginning of the trip, folks, was a day alone with Jesus. Some rest for their bodies and away from the crowd. But do you understand, folks, that that was their sinful flesh that was talking? Because the reality Jesus had in mind was just the opposite. He wanted to give them a true reality, dear ones, just a little glimpse into the heart of God, a heart so filled with compassion. You think those disciples were tired? Jesus was the one who was getting just overwhelmed with all of these people. And yet when they pull up on shore, Mark tells us what I said before, that Jesus had compassion on these people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he set his own interests aside because his love for those people demanded him to reach out to them with true rest. Not a snooze in the shade, but the balm of Gilead, dear ones. The bread and the water of life that can reach way past our tired bodies, right down into the deepest recesses of our soul. And provide that nurture, that sustenance, that all of us yearn for. When Jesus fed the 5,000, when he said that to the disciples, all he wanted them to understand was the very one, namely himself, he was the one who had brought this situation about. The people followed around the lake. They were so anxious to be with him that day. The very one who had brought this situation about no food was the only one who could actually meet that need. And he did so in his boundless grace and power. More than enough, in fact. This had been a day, dear ones, of teaching the disciples about reality, God's style. 
Not about the stuff that we get in our heads that we think is reality. But to get a whole new grip on what is really real. And it all led up to Jesus coming out to the disciples on the water with those three short statements. Take courage and don't be afraid. The first and the last. Easily said when you're in the middle of a storm, those guys were experienced fishermen. They knew the situation they were in and they were scared. Sounds simple enough to say, but it all rests on, dear ones, what he said in between those two words of encouragement. It was the simple statement, it is I. But in the original language, dear ones, Jesus told those disciples, I am. And in that moment, dear ones, Jesus equated himself with the God who met Moses at the burning bush. The God who went nose to nose with the great gods of Egypt and defeated every one of them. The God who opened the path through the Red Sea, for goodness sakes, and provided for his people for 40 years in an absolutely barren wilderness. I am is here. And that, dear ones, is the reality that he hoped the disciples would capture that day. So what does this have to do with our baptisms? Well, dear ones, you and I don't have the pleasure of being able to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and listen to his teaching. In some respects, we have something even better. We have his substitute, the counselor, the blessed counselor, the Holy Spirit, God the Father's great gift to you and me in the waters of baptism. The one who has created in you and me something that would never be a part of us on our own. That is faith. Faith to trust in this God of Scripture. To be the God of our salvation. To be the God of truth. And since the day that water poured on your head and on mine in the name of our triune God, the Holy Spirit has been at work. In the words of the Apostle Paul, struggling against our sinful flesh, wrestling against it, to try to help you and me understand that so much of the stuff of this world, all of the stuff of this world, is pseudo-reality. It's pseudo-reality. You name it, of the stuff of this world, and the stuff that you and I build our hopes and dreams on. And it's temporary, folks. 
won't last. This is why St. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, said very simply, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. One of the greatest examples of this, and you folks can do a little uh, studying on it on your own, is the man Job, who lost everything that you and I would call near and dear and, and reality, the stuff that makes reality, until there was only one great reality left for Job I know Job said that my Redeemer lives. That's the reality. I am will stand in the end on the earth. The question, dear ones, for you and me is not what is really real in my life, in my heart, in my mind. That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, what do I do with what I've just heard this evening? Can roll off my back like water off a duck. Or it can do something like this. Lead me to go home and say, Heavenly Father, I have put so much faith in the stuff of this world. I forget that it is all passing. It's stuff that you've given to me to bless me here, certainly. Stuff that I can use as tools to serve you and to work for you in the world that you placed me. But my sinful flesh has convinced me that when Jesus says, go and make disciples, I'm thinking about the missionary and not myself. Forgive me for this, Lord. And in this new day, as I enter into my classroom at school, as I get together with friends I love to be around, as I go to my job, help me, dear Father, by your grace to understand that there is one great reality. The reality is I am. And what he did what he accomplished on that cross for you and me. None less than the God of the burning bush in human form laid down his life for me. For me, for goodness sakes. So that I might have absolute confidence that in all of the changing pseudo-realities of life, one thing stands sure and true. Christ is my life. 
Let me finish up with just this last um, quote from Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul was thinking about our baptisms and talking about it in the figurative language that he used in Romans 6. We were buried with Christ by baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He's got that picture in mind when he writes this in Colossians chapter 3, dear ones. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ through the waters of baptism. Paul says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Then he kind of repeats himself to emphasize the point. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. That's the picture in baptism. And Paul says, your life, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Precious people, may God and the blessing of his Holy Spirit help us to understand the one true reality. That is the God we worship and the salvation he has provided for you and me. And live in that, dear ones. And then go into your world. Go into your world. And watch it turn upside down for Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand? May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus.